Well, amen. Hey, it is my privilege and joy to open up God's Word with you this morning in Exodus chapter 12 as we continue in our series. If you're just joining us, we are so glad to worship God alongside you this morning. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, But we've been going through the book of Exodus, and we are in Exodus 12 this morning. As you're turning there, and I hope that you are, so that you can put your eyes on God's Word this morning. Um, I was thinking about, in in relationship to this passage, uh, back, way back when the earth's crust was cooling, I was uh, at CSU, and uh, I I was in a, a psychology class. I love that class, but there was there was one kind of lesson that really just caught my attention. And it was this idea of how, how do we remember what we remember? Why do we forget what we forget? And, and how unreliable our, our, our minds are. Uh, how we think we remembered something one way, but, but when the truth is really shown that we, we actually are, are pretty terrible at remembering. And, and we, I remember, that just kind of, I remember. Uh, I think I remember that spurred me on to uh, just kind of think about this for a little bit. Uh, and then several years ago, I, I read uh, a book that became one of my favorite books, uh, Moonwalking with Einstein. Anyone read Moonwalking with Einstein? Oh, well, if, you, if you're tracking with me, you're going to want to read this book. Even the, the title is catchy and it mean, means something in the book. But in the book Moonwalking with Einstein, I believe Joshua or Jonathan, Jonathan Foer wrote it. Uh, it he kind of does this deep dive on memory. Uh, he, gets, he gets intrigued by uh, there's these memory competitions around the world. Uh, there, he kind of studies the, the psychology of memory uh, and just a lot of interesting stories. And that, that began to spur me on to read other books about memory. And I was, I was doing this, one, because I was fascinated, but two, I wanted to see if I could Im- improve my memory. And, and I don't know that I did, but, but I, I did learn that uh, most experts agree that there are certain things that, that happen that, that really are, are paths, different pathways through our brain that help us remember things. So, so for example, uh, things that are repeated. Uh, if you are living life and you have this repetition, that's going to uh, go in your brain in such a way to uh, lock it in. Things that are shocking or graphic, those are, are things that we tend to remember. Things that are emotionally significant. Uh, things that are built around a story because we are a story people. Like if it's a story, you're, you're much more likely to remember. That's why uh, some cultures can pass on from generation for generation and millennia in oral cultures. Just the, the most intricate details, story, things that are multi-sensory. So, so if it's, it's one thing if you just see it, but if you hear it and see it and smell it and taste it and, and feel it, th- those, again, are all different ways that are going to uh, help us remember. For example, if that's true, some of you can think right now, if I say, imagine the first time you saw a significant amount of blood in person. Maybe it was your own blood. Maybe you were a little kid. Maybe it was someone else. But again, a story begins to come to your mind in that moment, right? Uh, for me, I was thinking about it uh, this week, th- that story. In fact, uh, it, it was a day that has two significant moments in, in my life. Uh, my six-year-old neighbor, and I was six-year-old as well, had, had come over to play uh, with me, and, and we were playing basketball. We didn't have a hoop. We had a, a, a wheelbarrow in the, in the garage, and so we were shooting at, at the ball. And, and he had just moved from Los Angeles, and he was telling me about basketball. I think it was the first time I played basketball, but then he was telling me 
about a team called the Los Angeles Lakers. And they had a player named Magic. And as a six-year-old, I'm locked in at that moment. But it got better than that because I had another player named Kareem. I'm like, okay, this is my team for life now. And it, and it has been. So that was significant in that moment. Well, a few moments go by after shooting the ball. It, it had gone up above the garage door and had rolled and it got stuck. And so then uh, my friend Kenny, who I just remembered his name just now, actually. Uh, 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 and, and this is the only story I remember of him, actually. Uh, Kenny is like, oh, we'll get the ball down. So he takes a, a shovel off the wall. And he, he begins to try to get the ball. And, and then the shovel gets stuck. And I remember he takes his hands off. And, and we're looking around. Well, now what are we going to do? And then that, that moment where it seemed like it's almost in slow motion in my mind now, the shovel falls and the blade comes down and I, I can still hear the, the dull thud of the, the blade on his head and his hand going up and his face of terror going up and then when his hand came away just so- soaking wet with blood, his scream and, and I remember the drips of blood on the concrete floor and they would, they would stain that floor for years to come and, and I remember my other friend Tony coming across the street at just that moment and, and we're freaking out. We're, we're thinking Kenny is about to die and, and then now the blood's coming down from his hairline uh, over his face. It looked like a horror scene and so we, we're, we, we, we freak out. We run next door, get Kenny's mom and say, uh, Kenny's bleeding and, and she's freaked out, of course, in that moment and she, she comes and, and gets her son and, I, and the last memory I have of Kenny, who gave me my love for the Lakers was him bawling in the back seat with a bloody rag over his head and they going off to the hospital and again, that, that stuck with me <laughs> that, that stuck with me because it had all, a, a lot of those elements of shocking and emotionally significant it's a story in my mind it's multi-sensory and when I think about what we remember and why remember why we remember it and as God is our creator then when, when we look at this story all of these elements that that help us remember are going to be present it, it's there are going to be shocking moments. It's going to be built around a story. It's going to be multi-sensory. It's going to include the people's eyes and, and, and taste and hearing and smelling and feeling. It's going to be all of those things. And there will be blood. Lots and lots of blood. It's as if God wants his people to really, really remember this passage. It's the central passage in the Old Testament of God's saving work. It's the passage of the Old Testament that points to the ultimate saving work of Christ on our behalf. And God wants you and I to remember it. To remember it. So if you have your Bible, Exodus chapter 12 is where we're going to be at this morning. Um, But I'll just, by way of recap, catch catch us up to where we're at in the story. So last week we began where where God had, uh, Moses had come to Pharaoh and and says, God says, let my people go and he won't. And then Pharaoh's heart is hard and and God is hardening his heart. And that thing starts to spin out of control and the the plays get worse and worse and worse. And and it gets, uh, it seems to be going very, very quickly now. And then uh, after after nine plagues, the tenth one, Moses comes to Pharaoh once again and he warns Pharaoh. He says, listen, it's, it's, this, it's going to get as bad as possible if you don't repent. 
There's going to be the death of the firstborn in all the land. So Pharaoh, so, so Moses warns Pharaoh, but at this point, Pharaoh's heart is so hardened that he still will not listen. In fact, in, in chapter 11, verse 8, after Moses uh, tells Pharaoh all this, and Pharaoh's still hardened to this, it says this at the end of the verse, it says, um, then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. He's furious. He's furious because he knows it doesn't have to be like this. That this tragedy that's going to unfold across the land of the death of the firstborn, it doesn't have to be like this. Just repent and relent, Pharaoh, but he won't do it. So Moses is furious. Well, up until this point through the first nine plagues, the story has moved rather quickly from one to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. But now all of a sudden in verse 12, it slows way down. Way down. It's as if God is saying, pay attention to this. I'm going to go very carefully now. He gives some instructions to Moses and Aaron, and they'll give some instructions to the people, but they're very specific instructions. So if you will, look with me at chapter 12. This is God's word. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month the first month of your year. So right away, we know something's up. We're we're gonna change your calendar, Moses, so that every year that comes around, when when the calendar turns over, you're gonna be reminded of what is about to happen. It'd be as if, uh, as Americans, we reset our calendar to be uh, the first uh, uh, of July (laughs) because it's our fruit. You you pick that up. but, but he's just saying, listen, this, we're going we're gonna to change your calendar. We're going to change your schedule. This is what you're going to do. This is going to be the most important time of the year for you. Verse 3. It says, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. Okay, so again, let's not, God is slowing down for us, so let's not go too quickly here. Imagine this scene. So uh, the calendar's changed. You, you wait 10 days. Now, now on the 10th day, every family, every household is to go get a lamb. And we're going to see that that lamb is going to come into the house. It doesn't matter if you're a farmer or not. Like, like that lamb's coming into your house. Hopefully you've got a backyard. It doesn't matter. It's coming into your house. Uh, it's going to spend some time with you. It's going to spend four days with you. Your, your kids are going to play with it. They're going to make eye contact. With it. They're going to rub their, run their hands through its soft wool. They're going to feel the warmth of its breath for four days. Everyone. And this is, by the way, going, we're going to see, going to be every year for these people. Because God wants them to really, really remember this. Verse 5. It says, the animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. You may take them from sheep or the goats. So, again, this is just a, a, a precursor. It's foreshadowing the, the ultimate lamb, the, the perfect lamb. It's, it's pointing to a day will come. When one that is perfect will be sacrificed for us. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, Verse 6. It says, take care of them 
until the 14th day. Again, so they're in your house for four, four days. This has been a scene, by the way. Like, imagine this in your neighborhood. Every household. All of a sudden, New Year, we got lambs. I mean, you can, all you can hear for four days is the bleeding of the lambs uh, in, the, in, the, in the background, right? They're going, Mark, they're saying my name. Like, they're, they're just, uh, they're, it's just loud in the neighborhood for four days. So, so you do this for four days on the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight, Again, I don't think that, that we fully realize what, what is happening here. It says all the members. We are, we are so disconnected from our food sources that, that we're just used to going into the grocery store and having meat nice and saran wrapped and, and sanitary and de-blooded and de-boned and, and de-gutted, all, all of that. Uh, so, so that's what we think of. And in fact, if you were to do a Seder meal or a Passover meal, that's what we, what we would do. We'd go to the grocery store, we'd get some lamb and we'd be like, see, we're remembering. No, no, no. It's not even as if Dad can just go out back and say, you stay in there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slaughter this thing. I'll get it cleaned up and then I'll take the hose and I'll clean myself up and then we'll come in and, and we'll roast this thing. We'll have a nice dinner. No, no. That's not what God says for the people to do. Again, look what he, he says. All the members of the community. And in, in the Greek there, that all means all all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Again, picture the scene. You, you've just heard sheep for four days. All of a sudden, you're like, okay, kids, wife, it's, not, it's time to get the lamb. Let, let's, let's go out the front door. And as you come out your, your, your front door, you, you look up and down your street, and, and all the families are, are coming out the front door with all their lamb and the kids kids are crying and maybe the wives are crying maybe some of the husbands are, are crying as well like what in the world like it's a scene up and down the street and, and in every neighborhood and, and across the whole state the sun has set the time has come all the members of the community and so you say kids don't look away. God wants, wants you to see this. So, so I, I need your help. I want, I want you kids, you, you hold the backside. You hold the backside of the lamb. You say to your wife, I, I need your help as well. God, God says we all have to be a part of this. I, I need you to, I, I need you to wrap, wrap your, your, your arm around the, the head of the lamb. And I need you to pull, pull the head back so, so I can get to the neck. And you pull out your, your sharpened blade and you're like, okay. And you slip its throat. But it doesn't just die. It kicks, it squeals, it, you start to get splattered in blood. You're, you're covered in blood. And, it, and not just you, your, your wife and, and your kids are, are not unscathed. In this. It's, a, it's a bloody mess. Oh, you're going to remember this. And God says, I want everyone to be a part of this. All the members. 
Not only that, in verse 7, he says, then, then you are to take some of that blood, all that blood that's now flowing in the streets of your neighborhood. Take, take some of that blood and, and put it on the, the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they are to eat the lamb. And you see the bright red blood and you put it on your door frame and it starts to turn to that dark brown color. Again, God knows what we remember. He wants us to remember this. Verse 8. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Again, God's doing multi-sensory now. Why are they eating bitter, bitter, bitter herbs? It's because they are to remember their bitterness of slavery and captivity in Egypt. So this was to happen every year. Every year you, you eat this thing. I don't like this thing, Daddy. You, you need to eat it. But, but I don't want to. God says you eat it. But it's bitter. Yeah. And so was our slavery and captivity in Egypt. So you eat it with bitter herbs and then you eat bread made without yeast. Daddy, I, I don't like bread without yeast. It's flat. It has no taste. Yeah, but God wants us to remember how Two things, how we had to leave in haste out of Egypt and, and how uh, yeast is this symbol of, of indwelling sin that, that spreads and grows in our lives. So he's using food now to help them remember. Verse 9, do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. In verse 46, later in the chapter, we're told that this, this lamb cannot have any broken bones. Begin, that becomes significant later in the story of God. Well, it says, uh, verse 10, do not leave any of it till morning. If someone's left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So, so be ready to go. Even when you're years from now, just remembering this, dress up, put on your shoes, have the, have the staff, put in your cloak, be ready to go. And, and when it's time to eat, don't enjoy it. Eat it fast. So that you can remember what your ancestors had to do. And by the way, these people, they're all just receiving it uh, on faith. Like everyone else is looking back to what God did. Now they're, they're going to have to receive this on what God will do. Well, it goes on. Verse 12. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. There's two theological truths that begin to come up to the surface in those two verses. One is what we might call the principle of a spiritual egalitarianism. And what I mean by this is all the way up until this point in all the plagues, God has made a distinction between his people and the Egyptians, between where they live in Goshen and the Egyptians. So, so the livestock of the Egyptians have died. The hailstorms have landed on the Egyptians. They, they haven't landed on the Israelites. They, the Israelites have just been spared. But in this plague, the Israelites for the first time are commanded to do something. 
And, and the reason for that is this, that they too are guilty before a holy God. That they too stand condemned. They, though they aren't the oppressors in the sense of, of this moment of slavery, they too have, well, what, what Paul says in Romans three twenty two and 23, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned. For all have sinned and, and fallen short of the glory of God. So, so, so we see the first principle of that, that the Israelites themselves are guilty. And when the, the destroyer comes in a precursor of God's judgment, they would stand guilty before the Lord. But the second one is the, the idea of substitutionary atonement. Atonement. It says, the blood will be a sign for you on houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. So, so it, it's not just that they needed to mark out these are Israel families. They, they could have painted their door red. No, no. The, the blood of the lamb is a, a, a precursor. It's a pointing to a substitution has been taken place here. God knows who's in the houses. He knows whether they're Israelites or, or Egyptians. He knows who's in the house. Sinners are in the house. And they need the blood of the lamb to cover them. Well, as that begins to roll out, he, he says, gives them some more details about how this is going to happen. And we'll, we'll jump down to verse 24, where now Moses is giving the instructions to the people that God has given him. Verse 24, obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, observe this ceremony. So it's a lasting ordinance. There's only three things in the Old Testament that are lasting ordinances. It's uh, the Sabbath, to have a lasting ordinance. It's circumcision, and now Passover, a lasting ordinance. Verse 26, and when your children ask you, and they will, what does this ceremony mean to you, right? Like if you do this every year, every year the kids are like, why are we doing this? Do we have to do that again, Daddy? That was terrible last year. Why, why are we doing this? And you say, I'm glad you asked. Verse 27, then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over you, over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. You're teaching your kids about substitutionary atonement. You're saying, why did we, why did we, kill the lamb that had become part of our family for four days? And you point over to the oldest brother and say, so he can live. So he can live. Look at the response of the people as Moses tells them this. Second half of verse 27. It says, then the people bowed down and worshiped. And they bowed down and worshiped. Why did they bow down and worship? Because they just had an awakening to the mercy and grace of God. They know that they deserve death. They know that the, the Lamb's fate should have been their fate. And God is now coming to his people and saying, I can provide a substitute. It doesn't have to be your story. I can provide a substitute. It'll be someone else's story. You will go free and they said, well, if that's who you are, if that's the kind of grace that you have, the only response 
The only reasonable response in that moment is to get on your face and praise God. I deserve death, but you have preserved me and given me life. And after you get up from worship, you do what they did. Verse 28, the Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So so we worship and we obey. We worship and we obey in response to the amazing grace of God that has come to us. That's that's what God's people do. You worship and then you get up and you obey because he's worthy of our worship and he's worthy of us following him in all these things. Now verses 29 and 30 are, are some of the heaviest, darkest verses in all of the Bible. We'll deal with them. Verse 29, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night. There was a loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. I mean, that's, that's heavy. Again, don't read your Bible too quickly. This is why Moses was hot with anger. It didn't have to be this way. In the middle of the night, early, early morning, you hear a scream of a mother, which wakes up neighbors, and then you start to hear the the screaming and wailing of your neighbors, and it just rises up into this loud crescendo. And every house in the land had a corpse. The question was, is the corpse the firstborn son or the lamb of God? That was the question in that moment. Either they had the blood of the lamb on their door frames of their houses or they didn't. So so again, when we come to this, we have to wrestle with this and and remember a a few things about what's gone on here. Remember that God is a just judge. God had warned Adam and Eve, our first parents, that in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Uh, They didn't die. There was grace sustaining them. but, but, But the wages of sin is death. All deserve it. We talked about this last week. But but the wages of sin is death, but but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That they all deserved death to die, but God in his mercy has spared them. These people that had had, had done their own genocide against the own firstborns and and all the males of of Egypt are now just receiving their just reward. It's the severity and the mercy of God. So so the, the thing that should scandalize us about verses 29 and 30 isn't that God executed his justice in the land, as hard as that is to, to, to swallow and to, to comprehend. That, that's not the thing that should shock us and scandalize us. The thing that should shock and scandalize you and me is that of our own sin. Is that the realization that this is what you and I deserve. The scandal of God isn't that God is a just God and, and gives out just punishments. The scandal of God is that God gives grace that, that's what the scandal is here. Because here's the deal. We, we said Exodus is, is central to the Bible. And to understand Exodus and to understand the Bible, you can understand it through the covenants of God. That's true. But there's other stories that run from Genesis to Revelation as well that tell the story of God. The Bible is the story of the Lamb. 
Genesis chapter 22, Abraham and Isaac, after waiting years and years and years and years for Isaac, God says, I want you to take Isaac, your only son. I want you to take him to Mount Moriah. I want you to sacrifice him. And Abraham doesn't understand the command, but in obedience, he begins to walk. It's a three-day journey. He, he goes there, and, and on the last day, as they're going up the mountain, Abram's got the fire in his hand. He's got the, 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 the blade in his hand, and, and Isaac has the, the wood that he's carrying. And, and what does Isaac say? Isaac says, I see the fire. I see the blade. I see the wood, but I don't see the lamb. And Abram says, God will provide. He goes up to the top of the mountain, puts Abram on the altar, and God says, stop. Stop, Abram. Stop. And there's a ram in the thicket. And in that moment, God has Abram sacrifice the ram. And Abram renames the place. What does he rename the place to be? He renames the place to God will provide. God provides. The Bible is the story of the lamb. You fast forward into our passage today. We see uh, that which was true of one family now gets expanded to all the family of the the people of God. All of them have a lamb that God has provided and the blood of the lamb has provided a substitute for the people, for God's judgment to pass over them. Fast forward through the rest of the Old Testament sacrificial system. All of it, all of it was pointing to a substitute that, that Sin brings death. And if it's not our death, it has to be someone else's. Fast forward it to the New Testament. John the Baptist, John 1.29, sees Jesus, says, behold. That, that word behold, look, is look, focus your eyes, ponder, think about. This is the one. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because the Bible's about a lamb. You fast forward to the night that Jesus was betrayed and what was he doing? He was observing this ceremony, the Passover ceremony. As he gathered his disciples in the upper room, it would have been very customary for, for the leader of that group to stand up and be the presider of the ceremony. The presider would, would go through uh, Exodus 12 and, and he would explain the elements, kind of like what we've done here this morning of, uh, of the meal that they were about to have. But two surprises happened at that meal. These disciples had heard this their whole lives. They, they knew the script. Remember, repetition helps. They, they knew the script, but Jesus goes off script. When Jesus takes the bread... And he gives thanks to his father. They expect Jesus to say, this is the bread of our affliction. Our our forefathers were afflicted in the wilderness and in Egypt under slavery. That's not what Jesus says, right? Jesus gives thanks to the father. He says, this is my body broken for you. He's saying, this is the bread of my affliction. The other surprise in Jesus' Last Supper, is that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, none of them mention the presence of the Lamb, which is a pretty important part of the Passover meal because the Lamb was at the meal. The Lamb was going to slaughter. And Isaiah tells us this 700 years before Jesus. He was oppressed and afflicted like a lamb led to the slaughter. He was silent. On him was the punishment that brought us peace. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Fast forward to the book of Revelation. 
the number one designator of King Jesus title is Lamb, the Lamb of God. 34 times in the book of Revelation. The Lamb of God who was slain. The Lamb of God who is King of kings and Lord of lords. The Lamb of God who rules and reigns. The Lamb of God whose blood was shed time and time again. The story of the Bible is the story of the Lamb. So with Exodus 12 and the story of the Lamb, what would God have for us now 3,300 years after this event? Simply this, the most important question that you and I can answer is what have you done with the blood of the Lamb? What have you done with the blood of the Lamb? Is it on the doorframe, by faith, is it on the doorframe of your heart and life? Because that's your only hope. And notice, notice that that's, the, that's all you do. It isn't even that you have to have really, 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 really strong faith or fervency or, or a lot of clarity. You know, when the destroying angel came, he didn't check on how strong of faith do these people have in each one of these homes. No. Did they have the blood of the lamb? If they had the blood of the lamb, he passed over. This is why Jesus said, if you have faith, even the side of a, size of a mustard seed, you can say to that mountain, go into the sea and it'll go. His point there was not to be moving around mountains. His point was that weak faith in a strong object is enough. Strong faith in a weak object like yourself will always fail. So what have you done with the blood of the lamb? If you have done nothing with it, today is an invitation, the, the mercy and grace of God saying, uh, you can apply it right now. You can trust in Jesus and I will pass over you on the day of judgment. You will get grace because I gave my son judgment. Abraham, twice in that story, when he takes Isaac up to the mountain, it says, the narrative says, Abraham's only son that he loved. Abraham's only son that he loved. And Jesus being the perfect lamb, God does what Abraham doesn't. He sacrifices his own son that he loves. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So we should ponder the question, what do we have done with the lamb? We should ponder the question, um, how is this the ground for our worship? If you've received mercy and grace, the only reasonable response is to worship and praise and to obey. We remember these things also together as God's people. This was to be a community thing every year. And now as God's people, we get to do it every week. Every week we, we need this reminder of what's ultimately true, that grace has come to us. The, the Lamb of God has died in our place. So sometimes when I'm, when I'm writing a sermon, I try to just in one, one sentence say, what is this passage about? What is really happening? I, I wrote it down this week, simply said this. God's people... Remember God's substitute that saves from God's just judgment. That's who we are. We are God's people who remember God's substitute that saves from God's just judgment. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Lord, though our sins deserve death, you have given us grace by the blood of the Lamb. Lord, let us be a people that rejoice in that, think about that, ponder that, talk about that, sing about that, and tell others about that this week. Lord, we are a forgetful people, so remind us daily of these truths. 
We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.